exactly does it mean to share your hotness? We all have our own unique spark. We are burning out of control like a wildfire, attracting attention, but is it the right kind of attention? All around us are people who are campfires. They don't get as much attention, but their story, their signature spark, their heat that attracts us close to them, those stories need to be shared. On this podcast, we're sharing their stories, their stories of resilience, overcoming, how to find joy, happiness, everyday people who found their spark and made their life amazing. My guest, Nicole. Nicole, what's your last name? It just slipped my mind. Jones. Jones. Okay. Well, that's why it slipped my mind is because Johnson's like the most common last name in America. So yeah, I'm sorry. So Nicole Jones, unforgettable though. I already know that because just the 30 seconds I've heard of your story, I'm like, dang, we got to get this going here. So uh, Nicole Jones, thank you for being on and sharing your hotness today. Oh, thank you for asking. Yes. So let's kind of jump in because you and I don't know each other, you know, really. I mean, I know we've met at one point. I don't remember where it's a real thing, but you know, let's, let's just, let's just get into it for the listener. All right. Tell me about you. Jump into your story. I know I I want you to kind of introduce what today's topic is other than just the addiction thing. Um, Wow. I get to pick a topic. Okay. So let me think. Um, um, I think the topic would be um, recovery is possible for whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um. I always knew that if there was a problem, there was an answer in life. You know, if um, there's light, there's dark, if there's up, there's down. There was, I always knew that whatever was wrong with me, I knew there was an answer out there. I just needed to find it. Okay. How did you know that? I don't know. So I just, just had this just internal the... dialogue that there was always... Well, because as going through the childhood trauma that I went through at such a very young age, and then I lost um, a best friend to suicide at 14, Mm. I became very quiet. I was a very quiet child and you couldn't get a lot of information out of me. And because I didn't know how to express any of my feelings, like, and if I did express something, it was just like crying and tears. And it was just more than my human body could handle at the time. Mm. So I became very quiet. Which brings up a really interesting point about emotions in children. You know, children's emotions are so huge because they don't know they can get through it. And they don't know how to express what's going on. Like I didn't have the vocabulary to express what I was feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vocabulary, mental development, emotional development. I'm sure if we were psychiatrists, we could like talk really smart about this right now. So people go Google it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My mom used to say that I was a kid and I didn't have real feelings. And I always say as an adult that I had no more intense feelings other than the feeling of grief than I did as a child. Yeah. And I had very traumatic things happen to me and they were being minimized. And I think that when we're like, oh, kids are resilient, they'll be fine. Uh, No. No. no, kids, kids keep living. Yes. But living is not a sign of resilience. Yeah. And they don't know how to communicate at those young ages that they're hurting. And we, and you can't really see the damage until they're older. Yeah. Yeah. 
unless they're so, like, you know, acting out at, you know, eight years old, but most of the time they just look fine because they're playing or whatever, because they can't verbalize what's going on with them until they're older. Right. Right. So, you know, cause the coping strategy of a kid is to go play with a toy yes. or a coping strategy as an adult is like to go get into drugs. <laughs> you know? So you shared a little bit, just that little teeny snippet, um, when we were messaging back and forth that, um, there was childhood addiction. So let's start with your parents' childhood addiction? Um, my parents always, I always, when I was growing up, I would witness them smoking these fake cigarettes. Uh, and then like, as I got older, I realized it was, you know, not tobacco. And then they drank a lot and, uh, and cocaine. Yeah. Uh, just, just, just cocaine. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and I wouldn't, it wouldn't, but I would find it in the bathroom. I find reminiscences of it, how I knew that's what it was at a young age. I don't really know. I just knew that it was not so, it was not good. I knew it made my parents act funny. And, um, and then if it got really late in the evening, you know, my dad got really mean. Mm. Well, now how many kids were in the home? Two. Two. Are you the oldest? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. Okay. So, so I would always like snoop to try to find this stuff. Oh, I wanted to know what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, dad, did you ever, does, did that lead to, to you experimenting? Yes. Yeah. And how, how old did that start? At least 13. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's rough. And 13, of course, you're just, you got it all figured out. Just ask yeah. a 13 year old, yeah. you know, they, they are an adult and they know, and you can't tell them, but you don't have your parents saying, uh, this is probably not a good idea to be getting into drugs. Um, they did. So my dad was do as I say, not as I do. It's okay, okay for me to be doing these things because he was an adult, but it wasn't okay for me to be doing them because I was a child. So was your home life functional in the sense that you had a house that was paid for, you know, like place yeah, to we live. We had a house and home and we went to school and it was pretty functional in that sense, but it was pretty emotional and scary. Right, right. So people on the outside, kind of, I guess what I was asking, people on the outside didn't know that your parents were playing with cocaine. No, I don't think so. I wow. mean, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, yeah. So people weren't like, oh, that's the, that's the house where no. cocaine, no. which, you know, is fun because for those who are just listening and can't see Jessica, she looks like a perfectly normal everyday person that, you know, doesn't look like the children of cocaine users, you know, whatever image that is. Well, of course, you know, in Hollywood, you know, we have, you know, the images that are shown us what, what, this is what drugs do to you is what you look like. You still yeah. have really good hair all the time. They always have good hair. Yeah. It's probably a wig. I know, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's so funny. Cause I'm like, I've seen homeless people and they don't have skin this good. Yeah, no, it was like, they did it on the weekends or when we went on vacation, um, the alcohol and the pot was there, you know, most of the time, but the other stuff would, I think show up on the weekends and stuff. And then it came and went cause my dad got in trouble. So he got, he cleaned up for quite a while. So like trouble with the law or trouble with his job? Oh, no, okay. The law. Okay. So do we get to hear more about that story or? Um, I don't know if I really, I just know that he was gone for a while. I'm assuming he was in jail. <laughs> and then, 
<laughs> that was really openly discussed so that you guys could really process your feelings and everything yeah. about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we found some paperwork in a filing cabinet a couple years later and like went through it and there's like the police report. And so, um, yeah, so then uh, he got cleaned up after that and that stuff was gone for until I became an adult. Wow. And then it resurfaced for him again. And because he never took care of his alcoholism and his addiction through any type of spiritual help, he just drove off the deep end and like... Mm -hmm. He went from a man that had a home, a boat, a house, a Harley, two daughters that were successful to living behind a, behind a building at 60 years old. Is he still alive? He is still alive. He is um, what we would, I would kind of call like he's got a wet brain. So he's not like all there anymore. And yeah, he, I've never heard that term before. Is that like a one that you came up with or is that just, no, it's a medical term from when you okay. drink too much and literally like your brain starts to produce, you know, things that it shouldn't be producing. And so it doesn't, it, you're kind of like permafried. Wow. You know, yeah. That line of like coming back to normalism. Um, and he lives in a house now with a couple other men um, that are, have, that are kind of the same. I believe that he is sober today um, just because he needs a place to live and he doesn't want to live behind a building anymore. But that's where his, and he was, um, he had stopped doing drugs, like hard drugs from the time I was, um, I don't know, early teens until um, my thirties. I, mm. I discovered that he had, he had started again and if you don't fix that spiritualness inside of you, you know, going back to the, if you're a true alcoholic or an addiction, you know, going back to that is very easy when you get presented with a hard bump in life. And that's what happened to him. And he had no defense over it. And uh, yeah, it's really, really sad. Yeah, that is sad. So, you know, you're sitting in a, you know, what I can see is a beautiful home that's, you know, decorated and all of that. The, I imagine the temptation or the, why, you know, when your dad's homeless to like bring him in, that's probably a, I mean, you can make an argument on either side, right? Yeah. So I've had to learn that those boundaries, because it's not safe to bring him into my home. And your cute little um, guy. And I have a little baby. And so um, it's just not safe. That's really hard. No, I, I completely agree with boundaries. I'm not trust me i'm not saying you you yeah. should do this um well thankfully uh, my home is on the smaller side so it's <laughs> like i have that for like a little bit of an excuse yeah um, yeah well i uh unfortunately didn't have that excuse and um we have made a joke um with my my husband and i because both sides of our family mostly mine um my family's going on 14 and a half years of living with us and my husband's only, their family's only taken up about a year. So my family no longer has access to, <laughs> to, to living with us. They've uh, they've uh, used their quota, but you know, um, addiction runs in my family a lot too. And, and uh, it's really hard because you're sitting there, like sometimes I'll be on a vacation or something and I'll feel this pang of guilt that, you know, my family can't have these things. Yeah. And for a long time, I didn't allow myself to do things like that because I felt so guilty. And, you know, I found out later there's this thing like a survivor's guilt thing of when you escape dysfunction, you know, to whatever level. And yours was obviously extreme of 
the laws intervening, you know, to how do you, how do you balance that? Or have you just made peace with that, with your spiritual exercises? It's taken a, I, you know, I like that you bring up that topic. It's taken quite a few years and like, um, going back and forth of being finally deciding that it's okay to heal. Mm. I would feel guilty of like doing the inner work and healing because I felt like I was leaving them behind. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause I felt more guilty about having a better life. Yeah. And that gave me a better life. I remember like during COVID when I would be at home eating and, you know, he would say like, I'm hungry. And I'm like, I would feel so guilty of just like eating in my, eating in my warm home, you know? And yeah, I can relate to that. Just, um, I didn't do a whole bunch of, I did a couple, but, um, vacations, but I could see, I can relate to that guilt. Yeah. I mean that the, for years we, you know, we, we didn't do any vacations, anything like that. And a lot was because we were, you know, putting my husband through school, establishing ourselves. And then I don't know if, you know, you, I know the listeners probably heard this, but my husband got hit by a bus and then had a massive heart attack. And then I was in a wheelchair. So obviously we had what we call during that time, hospications, you know, every spare dime was going to the hospital and they're very expensive vacations, you know, cause we weren't home. So it's a vacation, wow. you know, all together huddled in a hospital room. So we made jokes about that, but it was, you know, like years and years and years where I think I'd done the work, but because of what happened financially to us, it, then I started doing the vacations later and I felt so guilty Yeah. But, you know, really fundamentally, I, you know, when you're saying this, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I think I did feel guilty and probably still do kind of struggle with the, you know, I open up my fridge and I'm like, look at all this food. We're so glad. Yeah. It's just like, I just wake up every day with this sense of gratitude, which makes me really thankful for where I came from Yes, and you know, the scarcity of it. Right. And and we worked really hard for it and we make better choices for it. And that's there, there like. you go. That's the thing. It's like a lot of people work really hard. A lot of people work really hard. Like that's one thing about my family is not one of them's a lazy person. Like the gene for lazy does not exist in my siblings, but it goes to choices. choices. And it sounds so judgmental to say, I made better choices. You know, I didn't marry an abuser of emotional abuser or abuser of drugs that makes that really helps yes it does you know those those things make big differences in your life and i i've chosen not to do drugs and when we come from families like that we can kind of keep choosing that same pattern yeah but it becomes don't don't you find once you understand and tell me because i think this would be interesting because one i do believe the principle that we can only choose what we can see So if you don't know it's possible so that, you know, you look at somebody who comes from a really dysfunctional life, I would be interested to know, and maybe I'm going to out you because you mentioned that you feel like you need to tell your story. Maybe that's a book, right? But I found it very interesting to dive into who were the people that gave me a broader vision, Mm. right? Because this gives a responsibility to other people. When you see that distressed family, are you the person that's leaning in and helping? 
or are you the person that's further isolating those children? Yeah. You know, invite those kids into your home. It was people who brought me into their home that I'd see how they interact with their kids. And I'd be like, whoa, whoa. Right. So they started expanding my vision. I grew up in a town called Provo, Utah. It's literally nicknamed Happy Valley. Almost everybody when I was growing up there married. Jobs. Functional lives, you know, like just. You drive through it and you're like, yeah, this is Happy Valley, right? But that expanded my vision of what was possible. I'm like, one day I'm going to have a driveway without crap all in it. Yeah. You know, so that would be interesting, you know, for you, you know, if you, you know, just to dive into who gave you that bigger vision, right? That you could feel guilty about escaping, right? Because who did that? And that's why we need to be interconnected, right? That's why we need to. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have podcasts where I could delve into people's stories, right? <laughs> you know, it's just what you saw. And, and we had the Cosby show, you know, which I mean, I don't like, you know, how that, you know, Bill Cosby, you know, being having been a luster, but what was depicted was a beautiful, happy family with both mom and dad involved in the kids. Yeah. What? That's fantastic. You know, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, you know, now I don't think they could they would even try to attempt depicting a happy family on TV. I don't even watch TV anymore. Well, uh, you know, I, I do. I, I'm not like a TV watcher per se, but yeah, I, There's you know. Nothing, I, not a whole bunch, just Netflix. Couple well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is, you know, watching something on the square theme yes. as a family. And it might be the Netflix, it might be the Disney, you know. My daughter's really into Star Wars. So I know a lot more about Star Wars than than I would seek out to know. Well, mine's currently trash trucks. Trash trucks? Trash trucks. That's all the little one wants to watch is trash trucks. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Because I'm 49. So I'm past what the little ones. Yeah. My kids, it was the Wiggles. But I, I thought it was some kind of reality TV show about trash collectors. <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. That, that was probably <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. He's very interested in the little trash trucks and. Yeah. So. So going back to what we were discussing, because um, I don't know if people are interested in our TV watching habits, but the this idea of who were the people that gave you that vision so you could make better choices. Yeah. And I think there's a good conversation around how we label good choices and bad choices. We're not supposed to do that anymore. And I think this is really dangerous for kids in you know, a dysfunctional home to be like, Hey, you can do whatever you can choose, whatever you want. No, certain choices have certain consequences. So yeah. pick up whatever of those two, three part question I just threw at you. So, yeah, that makes me think about this family that, um, I had this friend and I would love to go to her house. She had a mom, a dad, four siblings, a pool in the backyard, and they went to church and I loved going to her house. And I would go to her house all the time and I would sneak away from mine to go to church with her. And to this day, her parents are still married. She's married. She has two kids. We're still friends. And I still look up to her to, for what's possible in life. So yeah. it's cool that you bring that up. And then I have a mentor today. That's the same thing. Her and her husband have been married a long time and they have two kids. Their kids have never seen them drink or anything like that. And they've always had like this 
beautiful home where yes, it's not perfect, but they have like open communication. And like, I, I, you know, I always look at like, if, um, even like when it was in business or in life, you want to look at the people that are winning and fall and just do what they do. Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Look at the people who are winning and do what they do. Like rinse and repeat, just keep doing this. Yeah. I was given the advice at one point where I was trying to reach back and um, help family members. And I was a brand new newlywed and I was given the advice to go have my happy life. And though I would have loved to have fixed the situation because it involves some nieces, um, I wasn't able to take on being a parent. And in one sense, it's my greatest life regret that I wasn't able to be their parent. But on the other hand, I wouldn't have been allowed to actually be their parent. You know, I, my brother would have been in the home, my home, you know? So, you know, in a perfect world, we could solve all the problems, right? Because I think when you're raised in a dysfunctional situation, you are raised to be the ultimate enabler. Yeah. The martyr, the Mm. saver. Yes. Fixer, the people pleaser. Okay. But barter is an interesting word. Cause to me, that brings up imagery of, you know, laying yourself on the sacrificial altar to help them, but not really actually doing anything for them. Did you say barter or martyr? Martyr. 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 You said barter? With an M, martyr. Like I the said martyr. Who comes in and saves everybody. Yes. But to me, the martyr word brings imagery of someone who is doing big grant. Like to me, that's not enabling that's to me in this, you know, why language is so fascinating, but to me, that's somebody who's like, I do everything for you and you do nothing for me, (laughs) but they're not actually doing anything, which to me is different than enabling. Cause I look at being a martyr as like a a manipulative tactic of trying to get sympathy. Mm. So maybe that's okay. There's, there's interesting thoughts bouncing in my head. Maybe that's like kind of like a step you can go towards being the, the abuser addict, addictive person, because you get addicted to that attention. So it's like these two different paths of trying to save everyone to trying to get the attention of everyone. What, what are your thoughts bouncing around in your head? Yeah. Like the approval yeah. The approval or the admiration, you know, right. Validation, which every human being needs community and approval. So I always tell people, you know, when I, my speaking in my books, you know, that the difference of a successful life is where you look for that significance mm. where you look for that validation, but where are you finding it? Right. I mean, we all want it. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm like, yeah, you do. You just don't care what maybe the people you're saying this to think about you, but there's somewhere you're getting validation, Yeah. you know, and somewhere you're getting significance and acceptance. We all need that. It's just where are we getting it from? Where are we seeking for it? Mm -hmm. You know, so let's go back to 13 year old Nicole. Hmm. you've started to uh, dabble in your parents' hobbies yeah. and your dad's saying, don't. Yeah. But he's doing. So what's going on in Nicole's head? Um, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, <laughs> he can do that. I can do it too. I just needed to find more ways to be sneaky about it. <laughs> okay. you know, I, I, I love how you're like, I just need to find more ways to be sneaky is your mouth kind of. <laughs> you know, and like, 
that just wasn't good for like a teenage girl. Yeah. Sneaking off from school and doing it during school hours. And, you know, what I, what I've learned in my later years, I was doing it to make my parents pay for the life that they had given me because they weren't paying attention. Ooh. Oh, oh, getting the attention. Getting. Yeah. So they were paying attention to their own stuff, you know, and they weren't really paying attention to what I was doing. So I was trying to do all these things to get them to pay attention and then like make them pay for like, I'm going to ruin my life to make you pay for what you you know you were ruining your life. No, I didn't know that until, you know, looking back at that, that, that's what I was the subconscious self-sabotage that was going on. Yeah. No, I had no idea I was ruining my life. Okay. Cause I'm like, that, that's pretty, um, that would be a pretty advanced form of self-flagellation to actually having a good time. Okay. Yeah. Cause sometimes, you know, it's really easy to look at people and be like, Hey, you're ruining your life. You're doing stupid stuff. And they're like, no, I'm not, you know, cause yeah. One of the things when you're young is you think you're the exception to every rule. Yeah. And I thought you realize all those statistics are your friends. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought I was young and having fun and everybody was doing it. My parents are doing it. And it's just, you know, and I just thought it was just, you know, we're just laughing and having a good time and smoking a little pot. I didn't know, you know, that I wouldn't go to college, you know, that I would suffer in relationships, that I wouldn't emotionally develop. <laughs> I didn't know I was doing those things. Well, you seem emotionally developed now and you've talked about the self-work and spiritual practices. So let's go into how deep it got before you started finding what was, you know, so what did you do to get from rock bottom and out? Do you want to know what rock bottom looked like? It was pretty, yeah, if that's okay. It looked like me living in a one bedroom apartment, being under a hundred pounds, my hair falling out and I'm gray. And I had no idea I was sick. (sighs) See, and I, I almost want to apologize because of how you're, you closed your eyes and you pulled back from the camera. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I made you go there for a second, you know, but then you came right back. And so it's like this, um, that was, that was powerful to see that Nicole, you know, that was that, that, that moved me, you know, to see this, okay, this is what it was. And then for you to that quickly come back to, to, you know, having that light in your eyes when you're talking to me it's the greatest um because I want people to know that you can come back you can recover from I mean I was I had a lot of hopes and dreams when I was young and I didn't know the path that was going to lead me to living in a one-bedroom apartment drinking wine out of a bottle on the floor with no kitchen going how did I get here Mm -hmm. I'm 20 I was 29 years old And I thought, okay, if I continue to do this until I'm 30, then I have a problem. And even at 29, I still didn't think I had a problem until one day I looked in the mirror and I said, oh my God, what happened? Mm -hmm. And then I realized I couldn't stop. And then like, after that, it wasn't even fun anymore. It was like this vicious cycle of like trying to get well and trying to get well and trying to get well. And then one day I woke up and I said, I'm going to get well today, even if it costs me my life. And I did anything that I could to like uh, get sober and, and get emotionally well to where I loved my life. 
and I, I did anything somebody told me to do, any mentorship that said, try this, you know, go here, go there, don't do this, don't do that. And I, and these I, were free mentors, people that were just giving you advice. So many, I've had so many different mentors for different periods of time. I had a mentor for a year to walk me through the abuse. And then I got to create a life that I wanted. And then I spent a year like building that life. Um, I wanted to live at the beach. I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to work for myself. I wanted a dog. I wanted to live a mile from the beach. And so I started to do the actions to, to get those things. And to, today I have those things. I've had those oh. for quite some time. Yeah. And, um, I work for myself and, you know, I do all that. And then I had another mentor and did a different program for the sobriety aspect of it. Cause those are two different, two different battles. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I did, you know, I did that journey and, um, I get, and so, and that's what I live today. So you teased it just a minute ago in your comment, but you told me before we started, um, you mentioned that you had been sexually molested. Was that because of being an addiction that you were abused or was that because you were a child? That was because I was a child. Hmm. I'm so sorry. I I've been there too. And it's super poopy. And, um, a lot of times people have asked me like, Lita, how did you not get an addiction? And the simple answer was, I saw my brother get wrapped up in that. And so for whatever reason I was given the, that doesn't look good. I'm not going to do that. Yes. You know, um, so that was my sister, my sister had that experience seeing me do that <laughs> and not, and not Anna. So she learned from her baby sister not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, you know, birth orders will switch to a little bit. of that. <laughs> but I'm sorry to hear that happened to you also. And it's nice to talk to another survivor. Well, you know, um, I wrote a book on overcoming this, but it was interesting that in my, for most of my life as an adult, I never felt the need to say it to people now, one-on-one, like if you and I were having this conversation one-on-one, I would, you know, go into what I felt like could be helpful for you because I did the self-work and I was fine. And, um, I hope that for every survivor that is married, that the, the two actions between what happened to them as a child and their marriage relations, the acts may be the same, but the intention being so different, they don't even connect. Yeah. And that's what I hope. And that's when I, when I, when, um, my second, my second book is a response of me to movement that was saying we are victims, but even more than being a survivor, I put forward the idea of being an advocate. And I'm going to tell you, Nicole, because language is important. The survivor is still a remnant of what is left over from what happened to it. And though it is a place of dignity and self-control, it's still a remnant, right? If you look up what survivor means in the dictionary, so I like to put forward being an advocate. I like that. Right? Yes. Because an advocate is someone who reaches back and you did that immediately with your empathy. I'm sorry that happened to you. Right? Because not all victims, survivors are in a place that they could be like, yeah, this happened. I wrote a book. I'm okay. In fact, I'm doing great. Right? And I loved how quickly you moved into that. I'm so sorry. It's so great to connect with you. Like that was beautiful. So Um, but being an advocate is someone who does that kind of thing is someone who is reaching out with empathy and love and the wisdom 
of what has happened to them, but without the trauma of it. Right. So like how you stepped back and you said, you want to know what rock bottom looked like? You basically, if it were, you gave anyone listening, like it's about to get deep. You went back into that. You pulled away almost like to not affect us with the sphere of that, the energy of that. Right. And then you went right back into you. You are more than a survivor. Thank you. Right. Like let's own that because I, at this point, have only the wisdom and the empathy and the strength that comes from what someone chose to do to me from two and a half to 14. But in my day-to-day life, I forget that it even happened. But I can go to access it to help others anytime I want. It's there, but it's not there in my head right? It's like an imprint of a gift now. And that's a place we can get to, right? That's a place we can go. And that is powerful to me. I credit that to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So again, so you're shaking your head. You agree with me. And I've met other people who may not have the same spiritual beliefs, but have still been able to get to a place of where it is not something that they're living in the trauma. And when we're sharing our stories, we can very easily be in a place of sharing trauma, but I haven't seen any of that with you. You're like, let's, you know, you're like going into what you learned from it. That's, that's a powerful place to be because you can help other people. Yes. Besides just your sister, you know, to not make <laughs> your choices. I shouldn't say just like that's a minimization because any one person that we help in our lives, that is worth, isn't it? Isn't it worth? I mean, like your kid. Okay, I'm gonna. Woo, I'm gonna, gonna. We're gonna pull up the seat, and I'm pulling my old granny, my old granny self up here. I'm only 49, but I'm older than you. Um, uh, to have your children have wisdom because of what you went through, and no trauma or residue. Like my children didn't find out about certain things until they were older, you know, like the sexual abuse, um, the youngest was 12 and now, you know, it's going to write a book. So I guess they had to know, (laughs) you know, but that my children have come home from school and said, so I talked to one of my friends today and she ended up telling me that they had been abused, molested, a boyfriend touched, you know, something had happened. And that I, uh, I walked him over to the counselor's office, mom. And I sat with them because they wanted me to, as they told the counselor what was happening. Yeah. The impact that we have on our children's because of, and you know, we can give them so much and it's what they do with it. It's the generational, you know, but you stopped that generational trauma. You stopped it in its tracks and you get to intentionally give that to that cute little guy I saw. (laughs) And every single day that imprints that empathy and wisdom and strength deeper every day, because you were intentionally doing something different for that person. And it goes beyond healing. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place to go to of not just, Oh, I'm not active in my addiction anymore. I'm not active in the abuse or whatever, or I'm not participating in, 
being, you know, whatever, to be able to realize that your children have strength and wisdom that they did not have to gain through their own experience. Yeah. And I, I just pray one day that they, and it's like, I forget these things. I, because it's just kind of my life, you know, like I forget the impact that we have on our children because of this and the, you know, they can come to us and, um, like your daughter's friend, you know, that's amazing. Yeah. Cause I didn't have anyone that I could go to then. Right. When I was young, I had no, I mean, we just didn't talk about that stuff. And we didn't have, I mean, social media has changed the world for good and for bad. Yeah. It's how we use the tool, right? It's just how we use it. And um, the ability for us to be able to talk and connect and be, um, to share wisdom, but just as easily we can be like, you know, recruiting people for Al-Qaeda. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're using social yeah. media to do that, which I always is like, why are we banning the orange haired loudmouth guy and not Al Qaeda? Yeah. Can, can we start with terrorist organizations? <laughs> you know, like we're going to be banning people. That's just my thoughts, you know, people that are doing some damage. I, it, I don't know. People who are, you know, going in and cutting little girls. Uh, yeah. I don't even want to you know, cutting out the clitoris. So they are unable to ever have an orgasm for the rest of life, but they can still create children and be a pleasure of a man. I think we should be um, cutting out those people off of social media. I think that's a fair place. And that's not a religion bashing because that is a very minute form of that particular group. And I don't even want to like, because I think it's important we distinguish radicals from the overall group. Mm -hmm. I met a woman that went through that. Oh, in one of the personal development companies that I was a part of, I got to sit next to her and she got up and shared her story at a, at a big group session one time. And she was out here to get her teaching credentials and uh, she decided to never go home. Yeah. Yeah. Does she have little people, kids? Um, back then she did not. Um, she was you know, I don't remember how old she was, but she talked about what it was like to live in a family and a woman in, in that area. And I had like no idea. So yeah, that happened to her and, um, they do it in like, it's almost like they do it in the community in front of people as well. It's like a ceremony. It's really sad what they do. And I had no idea that stuff went on today like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, people talk about wanting to, I mean, obviously we can easily more easily ripple out to our sister, to our family, to the people in our influence, the people who go to school with, and it's hard to solve the problems on the other side of the planet, you know? Um, but those same kind of problems are, you know, children being sex trafficked and this kind of stuff. And I'm like, we need to be, you know, I didn't want to say the word clitoris, <laughs> Because, you know, it, it feels, you know, like, okay, everybody get ready, you know, trigger warning, whatever, right? But we have to be blunt about these things so that we can say, this isn't okay that this is happening. This isn't just a cultural difference. This is robbing people of part of a beautiful part of being an adult. You know, it's not okay to, to do that to young girls. It's not okay to molest children. And, you know, there's a movement 
to have children be sex positive. You know this. No. Okay. I'm about to make you upset. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Everyone listening. So children are sexual beings. I'm quoting children are sexual beings. So they should be able to not only experiment. So, you know, experiment with what they like sexually, but that they can be able to communicate what they like to their sexual partners as children, as children. Right. So I was talking to a lady who was telling me this and I was like, what the, all the poopy words in my mind. And I'm asking clarifying questions. And she's like, yeah, yeah. Like, this is a great thing. She was for it. Oh, she was teaching it in schools. At what age? Starting at eight. That's terrible. It's called setting a child up for a pedophile. And when I told her that, she said, no, maps, minor attracted persons. Pedophile is a mean phrase. And that's, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. This is guilty. Right. As someone who has experienced that, she's like trying to get me to use kinder language. And I'm like, no, pedophile is the kinder language. And to realize that these children are not only setting them up for to be molested and abused sexually, it is also setting up children that will go then on to be pedophiles and molesters themselves, which further takes that trauma where they can't uncover and work through it and be okay. No, the best thing we can do is take these people to a way that where they can't hurt children. And we call those prisons, right? And get them some therapy so they can work on their own trauma. But it's getting worse and worse and worse because we come for, I come from a generation where, you know, kids didn't know that their parents were having sex. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. To, you know, how do I even have the words to tell someone I'm, this is happening to me. Right. So instead it was little childhood things of, oh, your parents are having sex and this is how sex is done. <laughs> you know what I mean? never even like telling someone this is what's happening to me. And then I look back and go, Oh my crap. I just, you know, horrified some 10 year olds. Right. You know, because, and it's very easy if those kinds of conversations kept happening, that I could have been someone who did more than had traumatic conversations and parents. Nowadays I do conferences and I'm about to launch this to the world. And I've kind of mentioned on my podcast twice because I'm working on it. My brain's in it, right? Where, you know, parents can, you know, workshops because I do match. I've been doing maturation programs for years, but where we can go a little bit deeper with parents and with kids because the kids are hearing all about it from their peers and their peers maybe are being molested or maybe just access to social media or maybe being targeted and being fed things that they can be educated about through the sex positivity movement. So it's getting worse because we got more hurt people who are not fixing the generational trauma. And now we're trying to make it a safe orientation, hijacking the LGBTQ movement into being something that I can't imagine from the friends I have in this movement to anyone wanting it to involve children. 
It's sick. It's 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 evil. It's yeah. evil. It's and evil. they're hijacked. They've hijacked Christianity. They've hijacking the LGBT. You know, to make sexual sexuality younger and younger ages. And we have to be clear that this is not okay. No, absolutely not. And this is yeah. why everyone's starting to homeschool. <laughs> yeah, right. But this is why we have to, even if you homeschool, your kids are still going to encounter people in the world. You know, friends, right? Really you so comfortable talking to your kids with their questions that they come to you with. You know, um, for me, um, I'm going to write this into a children's story, but the basics of it one day, my eight-year-old son, who I have parented differently, I have been very, and the good part of the story is he came to me, but a little neighbor boy who's only about two years older, so maybe 11, maybe, said to him, you're supposed to rub your penis. This is how you do it until it's hard. And then put it in a girl. And even though she says no, she likes it. So my eight-year-old has just described masturbation and rape to me. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Right. And so how I learned this at school. I, I, his mother liked to yell at the neighbors. So I never got to have this conversation with her but I did not distance her child from my child. And this is very key because this kid needed help in his life. Yeah. And I was that, I had been that kid, right? I mean, I didn't go around telling kids this, but if I push this kid away because this kid was repulsive, I'm isolating that kid in whatever is happening in his life. Instead of giving him the opportunity, like your neighbor, my neighbor, my church community, right? That gave me a different way of being. Right. So it was, we can't isolate our kids to the point that they are not hearing about these things. The, the, the reward was my kid came to me. So what becomes a children's book is how I talk to my son about it, which I won't take our time to do that here, but we can't just homeschool. We can't just retreat. Not that I'm against homeschooling, but your kids, my kid did not hear this at school. He heard this playing in our yard with our neighbor kid. Wow. Right. And you're giving him an opportunity for a different way of life. Yeah. And they, they've moved away, but, um, if they were still my neighbor, I would still be able to be an influence. Right. But we can't, I, we can't just go, I'm going to protect my kids at all costs. Yes. I'm going to protect my kids at all costs, but I'm going to widen the tent. Right. Wow. Because when we are reacting in fear, you're not, you're not a person of fear, Nicole, right? <laughs> we we're going to have moments of fear, but we have to be like, where is the, where's the ability to impact and to do something better? And that all goes back to how we are talking to our children. Now, if my son came to me and said this to me and I went, where are the crap? did you hear that from and I can't believe this and I'm gonna go have that kid's mouth washed out with soap you know right all these instead leaning into that conversation completely comfortable to talk to him about it so that then he could share all of what he had heard 
And I could then set up a counter to it. And so again, the whole, it's a little bit longer story, but that the counter being there are cheap copies in life, there are counterfeits and there's the real thing. And that goes back to what we've been, you know, kind of toying around in this conversation of there are choices that are good and there are choices that are bad mm-hmm. and consequences cannot be avoided. No, they just can't. Unless we're going to live in a remote island with no internet, our children are eventually going to hear about this stuff. Wow. How are we preparing them? And that's, that's something I'm lit on fire about doing. And, you know, we all, and even if we're not doing it from a professional standpoint, we need to be, especially if we are victim survivors, advocates, that we need to get to a place where we are able to parent in a way that our children will come to us. Yes. And that we can be the one that broadens the tent, that our home is the one that people come over to. The kids are coming and going, what, what is this? Yeah. We can be the ones that role model a different way of being. Anyway, I kind of got off on my little, my little thing there, you know, cause I'm old. (laughs) Giving me a new perspective on how I want to raise my child. Well, you know, that's what, that's what, why we got to have conversations, right? That's why we got to do this because I learned from you. You've learned from me. People listening in get to learn. We just need to be talking and not isolating each other because it is in the shadows that shame and dysfunction thrive. Mm, Yeah. Right. Okay. What would you like to share with the listeners before we uh, sadly have to, to, to end this? <laughs> um, I would just like to share that if they have a story to reach their hand out and ask, ask that they be heard because, you know, we get through this together and we can build community. And just like you're saying, you know, um, when we talk and when we share, we keep widening this world of healing and light and um that they don't have to sit in their darkness alone and that they're okay and that we can see them and love them absolutely love it nicole i am so glad that we got to connect and kindle deeper our friendship and i'm going to be cheering you on as you continue to share your story and ripple out and impact the world Thank you. And I'm going to keep reaching out to you so that I can learn how to be a better mom and um, raise a child that his friends have somewhere to go. Well, I'm, I'm launching a podcast series. I mean, um, a, a workshop series specifically for that and doing it really, really cheap so that it can be available to people and that there won't be a cost that um, is prohibitive for people because it needs to be done. So, Nicole, thank you for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness. Thank you for having me. 